Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, it's my pleasure and delight to have Amy Franco, who was the 2019 LinkedIn top sales voice and author of the book, Modern Seller. Amy, thank you for coming on today. Marcus, good to be here. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Would you mind giving the audience a quick one or two minute summary of your journey to get to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. I will keep this one short and sweet. So I've been in the sales profession in a number of capacities for over 20 years now, which uh, really kind of blows my mind. The first 10 years of my career was in what I would call traditional B2B selling roles. I worked for IBM and then I also worked for its uh, PC division spinoff Lenovo. So I sold a, what you would call a pretty commoditized product. I sold PC, mobile computing, technology, hardware services, things like that. So that was the first 10 years of my career. Then I decided I wanted to uh, jump into the deep end of entrepreneurship. And in uh, 2007, took a pivot into a completely different industry. I started a business in learning and development, started a training firm. And that is where I have been for probably the last 13 years, give or take. That has morphed and changed over the decade or so. And what it looks like today is I work all in sales with professional services, technology, insurance organizations, sales training, and keynote speaking. So that's what it looks like today. Excellent. Do you know Jay McBain? No, I don't. Jay's the lead analyst for Forrester around channels and alliances, but he was at Lenovo for a while. I wondered if you crossed over. Tell me this, board chair of the Girl Scouts, what's that taught you about salesmanship? Oh, yeah. So a little bit of backstory on that. I am the oldest of five. I have four younger sisters. So that maybe gives our, our audience, our listeners, a little, a little bit of insight into me already. <laughs> uh, leadership is in my DNA. If you were to ask one of my sisters, they might call that bossy, but I call it leadership. And, uh, <laughs> so it, it's always been a part of me. And uh, I had the opportunity to join the Girl Scouts organization through a network connection of mine. And that has since grown into becoming the board chair. And so uh, I'm the president of the board and uh, will hopefully be so for the next four years in helping, helping the growth initiative and helping bring, grow, build our girls into our leaders of tomorrow. So what are you doing in terms of bringing sales leadership skills into the Girl Scouts? I'm really curious about that. That was your question. Need to come back to that. <laughs> so, so here's where the sales piece really, a couple different places where that sales piece shows up. Interestingly enough, it absolutely shows up in board talent and making sure we have the right board members in the organization to help move us forward. There is Sales conversations around that, if you will, it is matching talent and making sure we are attracting the right people into our organization. So it absolutely shows up there. As an organization, we have some big growth initiatives. We are going to be launching and building a STEM center of excellence within our footprint. And the sales elements of that are absolutely everywhere from building community consensus to the donors, to the corporate and individual donors, to all the aspects of making this thing come to life. The sales piece of it is incredible. And I was talking with the, with the CEO of the organization and she said, you know, Amy, she's like, at this point in time where we are as an organization, your skills in selling is what is helping to move us forward. You are the leader for this time for this board because of the big initiatives and the big growth goals that we have. 
Fabulous. Have you come across John Barrow's book, I Want to Be in Sales When I Grow Up? I am familiar with John Barrow's, but not that book. So it sounds like one that has to be on my list. Well, the videos that accompany it, him training his daughter to sell Girl Scout cookies door oh. to door, who just wipes the floor in terms of sales targets. So, well, I, I'm really curious because I, I think salesmanship is one of those things that very few children aspire to. And I think that's a mistake. I think sales is a force for good. And I'd love to see more kids getting involved in sales. So I was curious to see whether or not you were bringing that element into the Girl Scouts. Well, and you know, it's so interesting that you say that. And I'm going to check out those videos from John Barrows for sure. But the interesting fact, the Girl Scout cookie brand is the second largest brand in the world, only behind Oreo a nearly $1 billion a year program across the world and uh, only second behind Oreo. So we we definitely have some sales skills going on in our organization. (laughs) Absolutely. Excellent. Okay, let's move on. What is a modern seller? Oh, so the catalyst for the book, The Modern Seller, really came from what I have myself experienced. When I started in sales, I was a transactional seller. I was selling a commoditized product. I was competing on price six ways to Sunday. And competing on price is nothing but a race to the bottom, right? It's a mug game. It is, it is. And um, I wasn't having a whole lot of fun at it. I wasn't as successful as I wanted to be, obviously. So while The Modern Seller is a book that I released just a year or so ago, I feel like I've been on this modern selling journey for the better part of my career. And I had to change the way that I was showing up and the way that I thought about my sales territory, the way I thought about my clients, I had to make this transition to modern selling, even with a commoditized product, in order to be successful. And so that was really the start of my journey. But to give us a working definition for a modern seller, a modern seller is someone who is recognized as a differentiator by both prospects and clients. And yes, you can be recognized by your prospects. Secondly, the value of the product or service that you sell The value of it isn't fully recognized without you as part of the equation. You are part of it. And then lastly, you are seen as a competitive advantage to your prospects or clients. They can't imagine not doing business without you. You are their secret weapon, so to speak. You know, that's really interesting because I think one of the challenges being the secret weapon is often they don't want to refer you because they don't want to refer you to their competition or they don't want to give away their secret source. I was working with an investment bank and the CEO said, there's no way I'm referring you. I'm part of a thousand company conglomerate and I'm doubling sales every year. There's no way I'm giving that to any of the other CEOs. So I'm curious, have you come across that battle yourself? Not to that degree, but it is one of the battles I have in my mind about niching. And being really deep within a niche where you are just known by everybody. And and one side of my brain completely understands that. The other side of my brain is has that conversation going on in it that says, oh, am I going to struggle to get referred because I am doing such a great job. We have a great partnership in this one company. So professional services is one of my niche niches in public accounting. They somehow has grown into a niche for me. And I have had those conversations with a couple of my top clients where they want to refer me, but they don't want to refer me. They ultimately end up referring me. And here's why. Because what they realize is it's all in the execution. 
you can talk sales strategy and sales training till the cows come home, but it's all in the execution and the implementation and what the leaders in those organizations do to make it come to life. It's really interesting. I think one of the ways that I have overcome this over time is making it easier for them to refer me in a way that delivers value to them. So there's looking at the organic referral within their own organization, looking at their partnerships and alliances, looking at the family tree. That one sometimes has a bit of politics creeps in. The alumni network. And one area that's really interesting is the customer's customer. And helping them recognize that the ecosystem in which they operate, if I'm working with their partners and their allies, and I'm working with their customers, then the rising tide raises all boats. So in circumstances where they are reluctant, I'm typically asking for referrals in those areas. And that's been pretty fruitful for me. What I like about that approach is it's very much modern selling because you are looking at what value you're providing to the prospect or the client. It's not just about us as the seller, right? And also it takes away that mindset piece that says, oh, well, they're not going to give me referrals because they don't want to refer me to their competitors. Well, let's think about it a little bit differently. Who else can they refer us to that is going to help them be better in the long run? Absolutely. And I think... This then comes to your five dimensions within modern selling. Tell us a little bit about that. So uh, the catalyst for the book for me, as I alluded to early on, was my own journey to modern selling, which I wasn't aware of that at the time. This is a long journey that I am still on. The process continues, right? But what I was seeing with my prospects and clients and just in the general economy, the business environments as a whole we need to be thinking differently about how we approach our prospects and clients. Things like the mechanics of a sales conversation, negotiating, closing, that stuff doesn't go away. We still need those activities and we need to do them well. But what I was seeing were some skills behind the skills that organizations were needing to build. So that was the catalyst. If we build these skills behind the skills, so a modern seller is agile, entrepreneurial, holistic, social, and an ambassador, we start building those. The rising tide lifts all boats theory. We get better at our everyday sales activities, whether you're a professional seller, an individual contributor, or you're a sales leader. So agile, I'm guessing, is the salesperson who can best adapt to the current environment is the one who survives and thrives. Yes, that's part of it, for sure. So I like to think of agility. There's a great Forbes author, uh, Kevin Cashman, I quote him in the book. It's about knowing what to do when you don't know what to do. We have to think differently and not be afraid of change, being able to adapt, anticipate, like you said, like you alluded to. But the more that we are able to practice agility, the better we are going to be for our prospects and clients because they expect it. They need to be more innovative. They need to be staying ahead of competitive forces, and we need to be helping them do that. It's not just selling them a product or service. We have to help them make their business better. It's really interesting. I interviewed a a chap called Jack Shamas, who specializes in teaching people how to sell to the C-suite. And that was one of the most important aspects that as a CXO, he was looking for from salespeople. It was how do we as salespeople create a competitive advantage for our CXO customers? And how do we help them differentiate? And in doing so, 
differentiate ourselves because the majority of salespeople are transactional. We all look, we all and, look the same. Yeah. One of the rules that we teach in Sandler is never look or sound like a salesperson. And what that rule teaches us is don't sound bland and vanilla and don't act and behave like everybody else. In fact, we have another rule, which is if your competition's doing it, do the opposite. So one of the things that we do is we always try and get people to say no to us instead of yes. We raise objections rather than run away from them, or we have the prospect handle them rather than handle them ourselves. We never justify, we never defend. We don't write proposals. We don't do the pit, we don't present to sell. So it rips the in innards of the sales process inside out. And you do differentiate in how you sell, not what you sell. For anyone who's listening or watching this right now, here's the question you can ask yourself just as a little bit of an agility test. Take a look at your top five clients, your top five prospects. When is the last time you brought them a unique, interesting idea that they hadn't thought of? That's one hallmark of agility. So test yourself on that. And if it's been a while, it's time to dig in and put the business advisor hat on and start thinking about those fresh new ideas that you could bring to them to make yourself look different and to help them grow their business. What I'm really curious about here is I have a strong belief that you listen and ask your way into a sale and you talk your way out of it. (laughs) Interesting, um, yeah. The best, well, average and weak salespeople ask questions to gather information. Better salespeople, but not great, ask questions in order to gain understanding. And the standout salespeople ask questions to deliver insight. And what I'm curious about is, would you recommend that people take the idea in its finished form or they should frame their questions so the prospect asks for that solution? Good question. So my instinct is the former and here's why. Because to your point about the types of questions that we ask, I don't ever want to go into a sales conversation asking a question that I could find elsewhere, publicly available information, working with my network, things like that. Something that's, yeah. that someone's going to say, you could have looked, looked that up online and gotten yourself yeah. an answer in five minutes. Don't we ever go into a conversation with that, those types of questions. But I would do the former and here's why. Because if I know this prospect or client, if I know enough about them to maybe be a couple steps ahead and to be thinking forward, and I know other clients that might be grappling with some similar problems, if I come to a prospect or client and say, here is something I'm seeing in the industry. Here are some ideas that I have around it. I'm showing some foresight, first of all. And then what I would do is say, could we schedule some time to do some whiteboarding around this? Let's see if it's happening in your organization. Let's see what's coming up for you. And it blends that that latter part of your question where they can start to bring in their own questions and start to think about it in their own way. Does this take time? Yes, it does. But when you do this well and you do this with your right prospects or clients, it can be exponential growth. That's a process we call fingerprinting. So you get the prospect's fingerprints all over the solution so that they own it. So we were going to disagree, but now I agree with you. Uh, (laughs) I'm mildly disappointed because I was up for the fight. Maybe those debate (laughs) classes in in high school have have paid off. (laughs) So tell me this then. 
what do you mean by holistic? Because that's a bit of a catch-all. Yeah, yeah. So here's what I mean by holistic. We alluded to this a little bit earlier when we talked about like CEOs and CXOs and some of the, the competitive pieces of it. There are lots of ecosystems that are surrounding us and our organization. Lots of ecosystems that can help us to be successful or can derail an opportunity, derail a client scenario. Are you thinking through all the connecting points to your sales process and to your sale? So let me, let me just give a quick example to kind of bring this to life. When I was at IBM and Lenovo, I sold PC mobile computing. I would be selling multi-million dollar contracts, multi-million dollar POs. That was not the sale. That was just, that was getting to yes, but the PO hitting and having to deliver on that PO and create a great client experience, that was going to determine in large part what I was able to do in the future with that client. We work so hard to get the clients that we have. How can we serve them well and build loyalty so they'll continue to grow with us? So thinking holistically about that particular scenario, I have a PO for millions of dollars of uh, technology, equipment, and services. All those connecting points from fulfillment to engagement delivery to making sure things were configured correctly, all those little pieces and parts had to be thought through and the systems created to make it successful. So that to me is what holistic is. That's the entire customer journey and customer experience from first contact all the way through to execution and when they're deriving the benefit from the product. To tie to that a little bit further, you talk about the cut, you're the customer's customer. You mentioned that. That's another part of the chain. That's holistic as well. Are you thinking about that? Excellent. Okay. And social. Are we talking social selling here or are we talking chatty cocktail parties? <laughs> yeah. Social is about building the right strategic relationships, regardless of what that medium is. It can be social selling technology platforms. It can be in person. There's any number of ways that we can build relationships. And I do believe we need to challenge ourselves. We have our comfort zones. Can we get out of our comfort zones and experiment with the right tools and methods? But we need access to the right relationships in order to accomplish our sales goals or really, really any goal. It's not done alone. So are you thinking about the right strategic relationships to build? And do you have a way to go about building them that is valuable to that other person, that is with integrity, and that can also move your opportunities forward? That's my view on social. And does that also include the partner ecosystem? Absolutely. My partner ecosystems, I talk about four relationships that need to be built. And one of them are your partner ecosystems. You might call them strategic alliances, whatever they look like in your organization. For myself, that is a large part of my business. And I encourage anyone to invest time there. The reality is that as technology in particular becomes more sophisticated and more complex, I think vendors are going to struggle more and more because the partner ecosystem is really where the relationship exists. And you might be providing PCs or laptops or networking or security or whatever. Whatever you are just one small part of the end customer's IT stack. And if you are not strong at being able to understand the strategic value that they're trying to achieve through technology, and you haven't got strong relationships with their partners, 
I think you're going to find it increasingly difficult to sell in a crowded, competitive, highly sophisticated market. And I think that probably brings us to ambassador. What is an ambassador by your definition? This is probably the dimension in the book that gets the most like, hmm, tell me more about that one. That one's interesting. I really, really haven't, haven't heard that, that term used before. So I think of an ambassador as a bridge. In a culture, you know, in a global sense, an ambassador is a bridge between countries and cultures, much the same way successful modern sellers are ambassadors. They do a couple things really well. The first is they stand really tall on the values of their organization. They are in the right organization and they really believe in what they're selling. Okay, so that's part of it. But they also stand tall on their own brand. They have a brand that they have defined. They are known in the marketplace. They're a little bit you know, famous, if you will, and they're willing to stand out. They don't just blend in with the crowd. So that, that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is they can take any win, doesn't matter how small. An initial win, new prospect that is signed on as a client, as a customer, they build those relationships so well within their ecosystems and they deliver so well that that can then become the springboard to better loyalty and more opportunities to grow wallet share, long-term client value. They're not making decisions for today. They're making decisions for the future. Right. So find customer relationship and the lifetime value that they can both deliver and receive. And they understand the basic formula. So the lifetime customer value formula is lifetime customer value equals average order value times average order frequency times customer lifetime times referrals. And if you look at that multiplier, it's that referral multiplier to be able to land and expand the account to go deep and wide and the customer lifetime so that they're being retained year in, year out. And they've got a strong set of relationships so that they have the inside track whenever a competitor is sniffing around. And it's not about the transaction. It's about the value that they're bringing both to the organization at a tactical level, but also the strategic value that they're able to deliver because they are well-known, they're well-liked, well-respected. They've infected the account to the point where they have raving fans and advocates, and they are able to create engagement because when they call, people pick up the phone and listen. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I, and that sounds like a client I want. Sign me up. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's the kind of salesperson you want as well. Absolutely. If you had a team of people, if you're a sales leader and you have a, a team of eight to 10 people, well, what if they were all like that? Well, you've touched a nerve with me here because I wrote a book called Making Channel Sales Work last year with my pal, David Davies. And one of the principles that we teach is build a special forces unit, not a land army. Now, if I remember, it was Mike Michalowicz talks about this that one A player is worth three Bs, one B player is worth three Cs. So one A is worth at least nine C players. Now, if you pay an A player and you recruit only A players, they end up producing nine, 12, 20 times what C players do. So it's better to recruit only a handful of these special forces units, these ambassadors, whether it be in your direct sales team or in your channel. And in fact, I interviewed another pal of mine, Glenn Robertson, 
earlier on this week. And we've identified that anywhere between 96 and 98% of marketing development funds in the channel are wasted on partners who produce next to nothing or produce bad business. Now, that's a terrifying statistic. When you think that anywhere between 2 and 4% of your channel partners generate 40 to 60% of your profitable revenue, why would you ever bother to recruit that mass, you know, that land army of people who don't produce? And the same thing with your sales team. Play favorites, stop recruiting just to fill a vacancy and put a warm body in a seat. Better to have no breath than bad breath in a sales territory. And I think this then shifts to another part of the conversation that we had prior to this, which is what's going on in the sales conversations between managers and their salespeople, that they allow so much terrible behavior to go on and people to stay stuck in non-performing comfort zones. The C players, to your comment on C players, the C players will absolutely drag down any team. That's not some aha moment or whatever. It's uh, that, that's To me, that's just obvious. You, if you have 10 people on your team and you have three or four of them that are just C players, for any reason, for any reason, they drag down the rest of your team. And as a leader, you are sucked into their drama when you could be investing your time with A players or helping move your B players to become A players. Easier said than done because there's lots of company politics that can sometimes prevent those changes from happening. But when you're looking at where you're spending your time, the chances are as a leader, you're probably spending an inordinate amount of time with your C players. Interestingly enough, I cobbled together a really useful model based on two triangles, the drama triangle and the winner's triangle. Have you come across them? Familiar, but yeah, go on. The drama triangle is made up of a triangle on its sharp point with the victim voice at the bottom, the persecutor on the top left and the rescuer on the top right. And ego thrives on drama. And whenever you take the voice of the victim, the persecutor or the rescuer, then you're being sucked into drama, which is avoidable and always harmful. So the victim voice is, why me? This is so unfair. Save me. And that attracts both the persecutor who says, Amy, you've ruined the whole day. You are a piece of, okay, whatever. And the rescuer helps without boundaries or permission. Is molly coddling, permissive. And that generally, if you look at those kind of dysfunctional sales teams, they operate out of that drama triangle. And a lot of businesses operate out of the drama triangle because you have different departments with structural tension competing and blaming each other. Sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, sometimes that rescuer personality will, they will just put Band-Aids on stuff. They're going to fix something right in the moment just to solve that immediate problem. But they don't rip off the Band-Aid to fix the longer term problem. And now all they're doing is sticking Band-Aids all over stuff and not really Uh, solving the problem. Rescuers tend to suffer from upward delegation and they have, I'm doing my best and they're always run ragged. And then eventually they move from rescuer to victim. This is so unfair and it's all on them. It's their own fault. What they fail to do is look in the mirror and realize that they're the perpetrator of their problems. I talk about these guys being a bit like being the fire chief and head arsonist all in one. They're putting out fire after fire and then setting new ones wherever they go. Now, Bruce Lee, my favorite philosopher, was asked, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And he said, be somewhere else. 
So instead of being a victim, you're vulnerable. Instead of being a persecutor, you're assertive. And instead of being a rescuer, you're nurturing and empathic. And that's a great place because they can never hit you there. If you operate from that winner's triangle, you're being adult, you're being nurturing. But what you're not doing is you're not getting into that child voice. You're not moving into that place where you're getting sucked into psychological gameplay. What you're able to do is confront the problem. Amy, I feel bad that I haven't raised this with you in the past. It's a problem that I feel is harming our relationship. And I hope you can forgive me for having overlooked this until now. Can you forgive me? Well, yes, of course. Excellent. Okay. Let me tell you what the problem is. As I see it, A, B, and C are happening, which has a knock-on effect, which is impacting you directly. And I'm looking to find a way that we can work through this to solve this problem so that we get past it and both of us benefit. How do you propose that we do this? And then you push the responsibility back onto the other person to tell you how they want to resolve it. And you stay out the fight. Incredibly powerful. That keeps the focus on the performance aspects of it. Here's A, B, and C. Here's what I'm seeing, A, B, and C. And can we work together on this? Can we work together? And what do you propose? And then that opens the door I, as, a, as a sales leader or any other leader for that matter to keep the conversation going and set up accountabilities so that you actually get those things addressed. And then you have a, a decision to make if they don't. It's like in comedy improv. If I tell you that I'm a blind three-legged drunkard from Billericke. Well, um, yes, and. and. You say, no, you're not. And you say, <laughs> no, you're not. Then it dies. But yep. if you have the yes and, absolutely. And it's the yes and equivalent in sales and management. So what I'm curious about is one of the things I see a lot of is there's all this pressure to bring in new prospects into the pipeline. Mm -hmm. And as soon as an opportunity is registered on the CRM, the CRM asks for a close date. And then the salesperson's attention is focused on the close date, not on managing the middle of the funnel. And I'm really curious to see what the modern seller does to make sure that you don't end up with that Kim Kardashian pipeline with the big bulge at the bottom where deals slip and then get constipated. Now that is a visual, my friends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is a visual, my friend. Yeah, so um, the CRM, the CRM piece is so interesting because a lot of it's backwards looking. We need to have it, but a lot of it is backwards looking instead of forwards looking. And you're right. As yeah. soon as you stick that date in, that close date, it's going to do a couple things. First, it puts it puts something in our mind that we may not have qualified this thing all the way through. We have not yet anticipated what some of the things are that can happen that might bring it in or push it out. The other thing that I see it doing is that now, depending on the size of the deal, it's a certain deal size and the way your organization is set up, it has now put that deal on the radar of certain levels of management, first, second, third line. And now there comes pressure from that top down that says, when are you going to close this? Why hasn't this closed yet? Yeah. It's supposed to come in this month. Can we offer them any discounts to get this thing closed? That and then that that right there starts a whole chain of events, a, di a discounting chain of events, which we can get into. 
But back to your question, when you see that date in there, sure, we want to put something out where we, based on our cell cycles and what we know about that, that five-part equation that you talked about, average order value, whatever those other five parts were, but you know what your cell cycle is and you can at least work to that. But that's where a sales leader becomes really important because you have to be able to work with your sales leader to set the right expectations with management and also with your prospects and clients so that we're smart about it. And we aren't just, we don't end up in a knee-jerk reaction to bring some deal in just based on an arbitrary point in time. This then comes back to something that's really driving me crazy. But again, I recognize it for what it is. Sales management is the single most precarious role in any company. And your typical sales manager is the top salesperson who's been promoted to the role after the last failed sales manager has been fired. And there's no ramp up, there's no training, and they get dumped in with the expectation that suddenly they're going to be able to shift from being a seller with a totally different skill set to being a manager. And what most people considered management is essentially bad supervisory role. Managers have four functions in my book. Hire the best people, get the best out of them, make sure they have the tools and resources that they need in order to be able to do their best work every day and to protect the sales team from the acts of idiocy and stupid decisions that are coming down from senior management. And to do this, they have to be great recruiters, they have to be trainers, they have to be coaches, they have to be accountability partners, they have to be deal midwives, they have to challenge, they have to be ready to say no, and they have to coach the salespeople to be agile, entrepreneurial, see that big strategic picture, be ambassadors. But I don't see any of that happening in most organizations. So what advice would you give to senior leadership? in order to grow effective managers and to attract people who actually have the hardwiring to be great managers instead of truly atrocious supervisors. When I was at IBM and at Lenovo, especially when I was in what I would consider a traditional sales role, the frontline manager, that first line manager in my book had the toughest job in the world. Toughest job. They were trying to lead a team. They were trying to manage up. You touched on a few things, that, and I wanted to add one thing to the, the sales leader list of things that they, that they have to do. And this might naturally roll up into one of your four. But when they are looking at a geography, a territory that they are responsible for growing and maintaining, taking a look at that geography and territory as a whole and being able to think strategically about where it's going and placing the talent in the right places to make that happen. Whatever that talent is, is it sales? Is it sales plus engineering? If you're in the IT stack, those types of partnerships, is it your ecosystems? Too many sales leaders I see are, they are minute in the details of their spreadsheets because that's what they're asked to do by upper management, but they aren't necessarily looking at the bigger picture of where their territory is headed. That's entrepreneurial thinking, in my opinion, of the sales leader as well. When you talk about a modern seller being entrepreneurial, a modern sales leader has to be entrepreneurial in that way. So I just just wanted, wanted to add those two cents. Back to your question, what can a sales leader do or how can an organization build sales leaders? 
We focus a lot on the individual seller. Do we have the individual sellers in the right roles? Are we training them? Now, I would argue we don't train them. They're not trained and coached enough, but no. another conversation. Agreed. Sales leaders, we need to put some rigor. An organization needs to have rigor around the type of sales leader that they want to attract into the organization. And are they as focused on recruiting the right sales leader for the role as they are about recruiting sellers? I don't agree with necessarily promoting someone from an individual contributor to a sales leader. It can work if the right things are done and it's the right person for the role, but more often than not, it's a big, it's a big zero. The other thing that I see that I would love to see organizations change, how many people listening on this podcast have had their sales manager change every 18 months to two years, maybe even shorter. I have a friend and and, and she's in tech. I don't mean to pick on tech, but she's in technology. I think in the last two years, she's probably had a dozen sales leaders, a dozen. That happens in media as well. I had one client who had five new CEOs in five years. And that kind of fatigue is tough to hang in with. It is tough. And then everybody, every leader that comes in wants to put their mark on something and change something. So when you're in an individual seller role, your instinct, especially if you're an A plus player, you're an A player, you want to go where you can perform. So uh, that, that kind of fatigue has to stop. I work with a lot of A players and they would make terrible managers. They're not interested in the welfare of a bunch of other people. They've got their number to hit. They like being at the top of the leaderboard. They don't have the patience to coach. They're great at planning and mapping their territory, and they'll work their bone to the bone to help their customers, and they're thinking strategically and all that kind of stuff. But the skill set is massively different from being an individual contributor. And what flabbergasts me is that you do see this massive churn, this revolving door in sales management. Every 12 to 18 months, I think the average is about 18 months. And that's hideously expensive because the cost of a wrong sales hire in the enterprise can be anywhere between 35 and 125 times salary when you take into account the lifetime customer value of all the people they manage to piss off, all the customers who will never do business with that company again, the referral business, and so on. But you hire the wrong manager who manages to upset and offend and drive away because 80% of salespeople, I headhunted for 10 years in the sales arena, and 80% of the salespeople said that they were leaving their manager, not the company, nor the job. They were leaving their manager. Now, when you think about what the hidden cost of a wrong hire in a sales management role, it can be five to 10 times the cost of a bad sales hire. That's ludicrous. You mentioned in the prep for the call, talking about sales conversations between seller and prospect mm-hmm. or seller and client, and that being an area of frustration for you. Tell me more about that. I was at a conference maybe two years ago, a sales enablement conference, and there was some research being presented. Uh, it was by Florida State University. And there was a statistic shared in that presentation that has just stuck in my mind ever since. You talk about not remembering stats, but I remember this one and it sticks with me. So if you were to take the average one hour sales conversation, you get one hour on a top prospects or top clients calendar, which is really hard to do sometimes. 
out of that hour, that prospect or client typically sees six minutes of value out of that hour, which means that we as sellers are wasting 54 minutes. That blows my mind. Okay. Well, that relates directly to another statistic that may stick in your mind, which is 83% of first meetings do not result in a second meeting. I believe it. Now, when you consider what that costs the business to acquire one qualified opportunity with a prospective decision maker, you know, someone might be calling for four, six, eight hours to get that one meeting. It may be that they then put in, let's pretend they actually prepare and put a plan together, you know, another couple of hours. Then there's a couple of hours travel there and back. Then there's all the pointless activity, writing proposals for people who are never going to buy. And then you multiply that out. You know, that's a one in five conversion rate from first meeting to second meeting. Now, a lot of these people are going on sales cycles that are three, four, five. I've heard of people going on 12 touches, you know, having 12 touches mm-hmm. over a sales cycle quite comfortably. So the attrition rate and the cost of the genuine hidden cost of customer acquisition is massive. I mean, a question I always like to ask, and I never get an answer to this, is so, Amy, tell me, win or lose, what's the typical cost of pursuit? Now, when you calculate it for an enterprise sale, if you get away with less than 40 grand, you're lucky. And I remember there was one deal that one of your previous employers had been involved in where they pursued a major bank for over 12 months. So they had up to 1,200 people involved in this whole pitch at some point doing proofs of concept and God knows what else. It would have cost them upwards of a billion dollars in hidden cost. Mm -hmm. Now, admittedly, it was a $3 billion a year account. Really well worth it because it was a massive 10-year outsourcing deal. But they blew a billion dollars on losing to the incumbent because they weren't asking the right questions. Now, The problem, again, is attachment. Senior leadership having an attachment to having a particular logo on their website and getting everybody to throw themselves heart and soul into this. And managers not asking difficult, uncomfortable, challenging questions to disqualify out. And this comes back to the constipated pipeline. If a sale is not moving forward, then why are we not disqualifying it? What are we going to do this week, this month to make sure that we advance rather than just spin our wheels? But there seems to be this naive attachment to looking busy rather than being effective. And this is where I see an awful lot of wrong investment in sales enablement because the basics are not being covered. What's got to change in leadership thinking? for them to focus their effort and attention and their investment on getting the basics right. Yeah, yeah, there's a couple things just kind of spinning around in my mind as you were sharing that story. So one thing I'll share is doing work in professional services has been very interesting for me because professional services tends to live and die by the billable hour. And so when you are going after an RFP or going after a heavy pursuit and you have 10 senior level people in the room, you take their billable hours by their billable rate, by how many hours that they invest into a pursuit or an RFP, 
you can really see it there in black and white on paper. And that's just not even the uh, the other, other costs associated. So that's a question that I will often ask is, let's talk about what your investment's going to be in ter- against the qualification, all the hours that you have to invest that you cannot bill other engagements because you're here. Absolutely. So, so to... Yeah, so just I just wanted to come back to that point uh, real briefly. But the opportunity cost is massive. Yes, it is. And you are hitting on something which it is so easy to sit there and say, well, we only will bid on RFPs that we know we can win. We will disqualify RFPs. We say that a lot, but we don't necessarily live it, especially in large enterprise Uh where there is major pressure to be responding to these RFPs, major fear. I chalk it up to fear and courage as a senior leader in an organization to say, let's look at the facts of this opportunity. Let's look at the facts of this prospect or client. And as a team, weigh, have some kind of objective way to wait whether or not this is an opportunity worth going after. Because our knee-jerk reaction is to say, yes, let's go after all those huge deals because we want the logo on the business card. Because I'm not going to the EDP to tell him or her that we aren't bidding on it. There could be political reasons for that. All kinds of reasons. But do we have an objective way to decide? And will senior leadership stand up and get the backing of their peers and whoever else to say we aren't going after this because it's not the right opportunity for us? We can't win it. This is where I think a playbook and the CRM can really come into their own, where there are gates that need to be passed through before you invest any more time, any more money, any more resource. And it makes it clear. It's like taking a technical or a subject matter expert or a consultant along to the sales pitch too early in the sale. It's crazy. When you think about how many organizations whine and bleat about how resource-stretched they are and how difficult it is to recruit top technical talent, and they squander them on non-prospects, where I don't know if you've ever seen the series Silicon Valley. No, I haven't. It's fabulous. If you've been in IT sales, then it's a must-watch. And there's a very non-PC thing that you can look up on YouTube. If you type in Silicon Valley and brain rate, it's basically they go along to pitch a venture capital firm or a private equity firm. And basically, it's a bunch of engineers lined up around the table, just pinching ideas and getting them to spill their guts because they haven't qualified it. And that qualification piece is so important. Salespeople fail to qualify. What they do is they qualify loosely for bank. And... Bant is a selfish qualification process. What you're trying to do there is tick some boxes. So you check mark those boxes and say, yes, they say they've got budget. Yes, they can make the decision. Yes, there's a project. Yes, they're working towards a timeframe. But that isn't real qualification. What most salespeople are doing is they're just going through that box checking exercise in order that they can look busy. I put this down to that they have a weak empty or inconsistent pipeline, and they don't have the guts to then disqualify out because they need to look busy and get this month's mortgage paid. And the manager has to hold their feet to the fire and say, tell me why this is true. And I've started to teach my clients that two salespeople need to sign off on it 
before it can be registered as an opportunity. So you go on the meeting and then you do a physical, written and a verbal debrief with another salesperson. And that other salesperson has to give the all clear before it can be registered. And at every stage, it has to have approval of someone else within the team who's going to hold your feet to the fire and also be held to account as to why that sale didn't go forward or you didn't win it. And the challenge here is it's okay to disqualify out early so long as you're qualifying appropriately. But the problem is that very few people are capable of really getting to the nub of the issue and getting to the truth. Because what they tend to do is get emotionally attached because their pipeline is weak. They feel the need to stay engaged and involved, racking up costs, sucking in resource, distracting, when what they should be doing is hitting the phones, using their network, getting out there and prospecting. But they would rather look busy than be effective. There is nothing more humbling than cleaning out your pipeline. I have gone through that exercise myself and I, it is like, I'm doing it like this because it's like, oh, I don't, I don't want to see what all's in there, but it's humbling, but it's, you go through it and it's like, oh boy, I have work to do. There is something motivating about seeing that pipeline. You're not tricking yourself or fooling yourself into thinking the pipeline's better than it is. I've been there. It's humbling, but it's worth doing. In the first month of working with my clients, what we'll typically do is we'll do the truth-telling and the pipeline review. And they go from a pipeline that's about a third full to next to nothing. Now, what's really interesting is the C players leave at that point of their own volition because they realize they have nowhere to hide and there's no way they're going to get past this. So They're not going to sit in the confessional with you. Absolutely. I worked with a client last year and he saved 450,000 pounds in salary costs by doing the pipeline review and all his bad people left. And what was really interesting was with one salesperson, they still hit the same number that they did the year before, but with 450,000 pounds worth of additional profit. That takes courage to do. It really does. It's easy to talk about it on the other side of it where it's been successful and you have the numbers to back it up. It's harder to do as a leader. And it takes a lot of guts to say, I'm looking at my team. I'm looking at my pipeline. These things aren't, aren't, these things aren't jiving. I need to make some changes and then to actually follow through with the change. Well, sales is a full contact blood sport. If you want a big friend (laughs) and you want to be loved, get a puppy. Don't get into sales and definitely don't get into sales management. No, Um, for sure. Amy, what are you reading, listening to, watching at the moment that's having a marked positive impact or maybe a book that's really had a real impact on your career? All right. So I'm going to give you a book that is a little off the beaten path. I think of it more around mindset and productivity. I'm reading a book right now called Sleep Smarter, getting ah. better rest, getting better sleep so I can be more productive. So that that is what is Who's on my bookshelf at the moment. Who's that by? That is by Sean Stevenson. I'll give you a great book as well. Uh, Keith Cunningham, The okay. Road Less Stupid. <laughs> That's great. It is just packed full of uncomfortable questions that senior leadership and managers need to be asking themselves and Principles by Ray Dalio. Those two books are just special. Okay, if you had a golden ticket and you could advise the idiot Amy age 23 how to avoid a lifetime of misery and self-sabotage, what would you advise her to do or not do? At 23, I was just getting into the start of my sales career. 
And at that point in my life, I was very, very motivated by things like baseline salary and the logo on my business card. That you talk about the ego part of it. <laughs> and so if I were, to, were to, to look back on that, knowing what I know now, and I think my advice would be, don't worry so much about the logo on the business card. Don't worry so much about what the, that, that base salary is going to look like. Be smart about it, but don't worry about it so much. Make the choices about your path based on where you want to head, where you want to grow to. And sales was the absolute best field that I could have gotten into. That's what I would say to the version of me from 22 years ago. I'd build on that and look at who is going to be helping you. You Look at the manager. Are they somebody who will train, who will coach? Look at their track record of developing people. Because in sales, your base salary is irrelevant. It's the results that you can generate. And my advice to salespeople is get a good mentors and go for the lowest base salary that you can possibly afford and maximize your commission because then you're putting skin in the game. And And be willing to invest in yourself. If your company doesn't give you the coach, go get the coach. They don't give you the mentor, go get the mentor. It's your career. It's up to you. Own it. Okay. A final question then. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment that you just can't quite get to grips with? Oh, I am wrestling with, I'm going to go back to where, I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier on. I have multiple revenue streams that I'm looking at at any given point in time in my business, whether it is sales training, it's consulting, it's keynote speaking. And this, this is like the entrepreneur's dilemma, right? It is giving chase sometimes to these different revenue streams. And what I always struggle with is as an entrepreneur is just staying focused on the things that that 80-20 rule, staying focused on the things that are the most important to the business. I've always struggled with that. And I probably always will to a degree, but I'm aware of it. And I get the coaching, I get the mentoring, but, uh, but that's something I will always work on. Are you a bit of a people pleaser? Oh, yeah. Okay. Do you like to be liked? Sure. Yeah. Okay. One of the lessons that I learned the hard way is what I say no to matters more than what I say yes to. Yeah, I agree. And the most successful people that I know in business and in sales are the ones who say no to the majority of requests. They plant their feet and they prioritize. I can't remember where I came across this. I think it may well have been Mike Michalowicz came up with a wonderful quadrant, which is do decide designate and design and look at where you're spending your time because if you're spending a lot of time doing chances are you can't scale and if you're spending a lot of time deciding probably you haven't trained and developed people enough to be able to move those decisions down your organizational food chain and if you're not delegating in the right way so you're not creating the right kind of boundaries and rules so that people can make those decisions, then that probably is going to take you away from the design element, which if you're building a business is the single most important part of what you're doing as an entrepreneur. So coming back to that modern seller, that entrepreneurial piece is really as much about designing the systems and the processes, the planning and prioritizing. And too often what I see is that 
we get sucked into the stuff that's exciting and shiny. And what we don't do is we don't focus on the stuff that will give us the long-term payoff. And I think we as coaches and as trainers can very easily fall into this because it's so easy to get seduced because we love doing the training. We love doing the coaching. We love doing the keynote speaking. And that then takes us away from the basics of what should we be prospecting on? What should we be focused on? How can we niche? So I'm really curious because I, I struggle with this as well to degree because there's so many aspects of what I do. Now, one thing that I have learned, which has been very useful, is, and it ties back in to get away from being a transactional seller, look at people who have the kind of problems that you can resolve, but niche down very, very tightly to a very clear, very tightly defined niche. So instead of being the provider to professional services, niche down to being provider to professional services in Southeast Detroit, who specialize in business transformation. And just focus on those people, because then that allows you to feed those three tenets of being seen as a value add in the equation, as being a differentiator, and as being a competitive advantage to your customers. That idea there speaks to the skills behind the skills. When we build those types of skills that you're just talking about, that that entrepreneurial muscle, the decision-making muscle, the design mind muscle, it helps us to be better at the everyday activities that help us grow our business, help, help us grow our territories, wherever, wherever any of us happen to be in our professional path at the moment. Wonderful. Amy, thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I hope we can do this again. If, you, if I haven't upset you or offended you too much. <laughs> Not um, at all. And I would, I would love to you. join you again. Thank you. How can people get hold of you? You can find me on uh, LinkedIn, Amy Franco, and then also amyfranco.com. Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast once again. Thank you so much for listening. This is an absolute joy to do. I get to meet some of my heroes and really fascinating people. And I get to rant, which is great fun. But if you think that you are somebody who has an opinion that other people really need to hear, or you feel that there's something really important about sales, sales recruitment, channel, enterprise sales, and you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, please get in touch and direct message me. And if there's someone specific that you'd like me to interview and give the third degree, then please connect us. So that's Marcus County signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. Happy selling. Take care now. Bye.